Heavenly Father, you said through the psalmist, as he prayed, I asked, Lord, that we would pray the same as a church. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. You are the God above all gods, transcendent and worthy of all honor and glory now and forever by all your creation. And yet you refuse to remain distant from us According to your infinite wisdom and out of your infinite love, you became a man that you might dwell in our presence. You became imminent that we might be united with you as brothers and sisters in the family of our Heavenly Father. You sent Christ to commune with His people, to pay for our sins, to equip us to overcome temptation and fear and sin and death. We recognize, Father, that in our flesh we are unable to do this. We are strapped with fear. We are overcome by our sin and the temptations seem almost as infinite as your glory. But we are thankful that through Christ and the Spirit that you've sent to dwell within us, that we can be encouraged even this day, knowing that our sins have been paid for, that death is no longer ours, and that every temptation that comes our way to turn away from you, you give us the strength in your Spirit to overcome, that we might be, as Christ is, a mighty conqueror. We ask this morning, Father, that you would be wonderfully gracious with our church, that you would equip us to hear your word, that we'd be rightly humbled in this truth that Christ would do so much for sinners like us. I pray, Lord, that you would encourage gospel community today and Brandon O'Sullivan as he preaches the gospel. I pray you would, as you do here, that you would grow that church in faith, in wisdom, in knowledge, in love, in souls that are saved, that you would do a mighty work on the west side of Santa Cruz as your Holy Spirit moves into that very dark place. We ask the same for our congregation, that we'd find ourselves rightly stirred by your Spirit this morning and rightly transformed into the image of Christ. Above all else, Father, we ask that you are glorified during this time, that you would use a sinner like me to proclaim these eternal truths to my brothers and sisters in Christ. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 2. I hope you haven't given up on Hebrews yet. Hebrews is a lot like the Gospel of John 
in that if you go too deep too early, you're going to find yourself repeating yourself again and again. And so if you've been a little displeased, you know, why didn't you sit on that verse or that word a little bit longer? There's good reason for it. We're going to get to um, some passages coming up here, um, all the way up through chapter 10, developing specifically Jesus Christ as our merciful and faithful high priest. But we're going we're to take another jab at a few verses today. We're going to be looking at um, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, specifically looking at Jesus in his incarnation. The title is The God-Man, the second person of the Holy Triune God becoming a man and then defeating the power of Satan and equipping us to overcome temptation when we are tempted. One of the greatest stumbling blocks throughout the centuries to this faith is the fact that God actually became a man. And you don't have to ponder too long on that to see the struggle. This idea of an all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal, transcendent God taking on flesh and blood. It almost seems counterintuitive, and some would argue impossible. The Scriptures say otherwise. But we also, I don't think we like the idea of God becoming a man. I mean, it's, it's, I, I'm much better, before I came to a saving grace, I was much better with the idea of a God being a distant God, a powerful God, a transcendent God, but I didn't like the thought of Him actually coming down and taking on flesh like me. That's too close, right? It's, it's why we're so good at virtual friendships today online, right? If you get real friends in flesh and blood, that's too close, so we keep Him at a distance. We like the same with God. Anonymity is what we do well in the Western world. But I think the reason that we hate the idea of God becoming a man most is because the Bible says he became a man to die for our sins that we might be saved. And as glorious as that salvation piece is, if, if the Son of God had to become a man to die that I might be saved or you might be saved, that means we were really, really, really bad. It says something about our hearts that we just do not want to admit. And so we have compelling reason to believe that God never, ever became a man. But the Bible says otherwise. The Holy Spirit has testified to the fact that Jesus Christ, in fact, did become a man. And he became a man for several reasons. We're just going to look at a few here um, with the time that we have. And my hope is this, that in seeing the incarnation of Jesus Christ, something we usually think about mostly at Christmas, is something we should be thinking about all the time. That the incarnation of Jesus Christ should shape how we live now, our understanding of death, our hope for eternity. And so I'd like to do that with you, talking about Jesus taking on flesh and blood. And I want to look at three specific things. Number one, that the the Son of God became a man to destroy the devil. Number two, the Son of God became a man to rescue man from the fear of death. Not just death, but the fear of death. And number three, The Son of God became a man to help those who are tempted. All right, so to destroy the devil, to rescue us from the fear of death, and to help us when we're tempted. Look at verse 14 with me. The Son of Man becoming, the Son of God becoming a man to destroy the devil. Verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Christ, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. 
since therefore the children share, the children of who? The descendants of Abraham, the descendants of Adam and Eve, we are fleshly creatures. We have physical bodies, flesh and blood. In fact, the phrase flesh and blood is always used in scriptures to refer to human nature or mankind. Many of you probably remember Matthew 16, 16 when Peter had his famous confession when he said to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Do you remember what Jesus said to him? He said, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you but my Father in heaven. He's saying, Peter, it wasn't your human nature, it wasn't your manhood that enabled you to come to this conclusion. My Father revealed it to you. And so when we hear this teaching that the Son of God took on flesh and blood, it means, and you may, may say, well, this is easy. It wasn't for the first 300 years of the church. It means that Jesus became a man, fully God, fully man at the exact same time. Look at verse 14 again. He partook in the same things, partaking in full humanity. That means, listen, he didn't appear to be a man and then depart the body. He didn't have an aberration of a ghost-like man and then left. He didn't use a body and then depart from that body. The Son of God became a man and is a man right now. You know that. He is fully man, fully God right now and will be for all eternity. And that's why the Apostle John was able to say in John 1.14 that he became flesh and dwelt among us. He walked among us as a man. So at the incarnation, the Son of God freely accepted the constraints of space and time in a physical body. you got to know that's a downgrade. The Son of God eternally begotten, not made, one in being with the Father, becomes a man. And he does that to be united with us as brothers and sisters in the family. He does that to bind himself to his people. But he does it for another reason, according to verses 14 and 15, and that's to serve us. Now the first question I, I ask, and you should ask, is wait a minute, wait a minute. The Son of God certainly would have been able to better serve mankind as the Son of God and not have to become a man, right? I mean, you're going to enter into time, take on the constraints of a physical body. He has to be able to serve us better from the throne, not according, again, to the Bible and certainly not according to this passage. The Bible teaches clearly it was necessary, listen, for God to become a man, according to this, to destroy, one, the devil and his works, and number two, to free mankind not only from the slavery of death, but from the fear of the slavery of death, that he had to take on flesh to do this. You say, well, why, why is that? Because we needed another Adam. The first Adam, our federal head, didn't make it. We needed a second Adam to come in and take a position as a perfect man to die in our place that through his death we might have life. He had to become a man to undo the curse of death that entered back in Genesis chapter 3 to overcome the one who had the power of death, that is Satan himself. The Bible uses the term here, devil. Now again, you, you, ha you can't just read through this and say, wait a minute, the devil has the power of death? I thought God is the giver and taker of life. 
Psalm 90, verse 3, You, God, return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. Job 14, 5, A person's days are determined. You, God, have decreed the number of his months and have set limits that he cannot exceed. And then Christ himself, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, says, Do not be afraid of the one who can kill the body. Christ says, Be afraid of the one who can cast the body and soul into hell. And then Jesus said, Yes, I tell you, fear him. So God is the one who has the power of death. So what is the author of Hebrews saying here in verse 17 when it talks about Satan or the devil possessing the power of death? Now, if you know your biblical theology, you say, I know exactly what he's talking about. He's taking us back to chapter 3 in Genesis when Satan successfully tempted Adam and Eve, the first couple made in flesh and blood, and in that temptation, he led them where? He led them to death. He brought about death in their lives. He deceived them. And the deception, the first lie by the father of lies was a lie about death. Satan, if you remember, he slithers into Adam and Eve's presence and he asks Eve a question. Well, they're both standing there. But he asks her a question. He asked a question he already knew the answer to. He says in Genesis 3.1, he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Is that, is that what he really said? Were you listening closely? Eve responded, God said you shall not eat of the, free of the tr- fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. He never said anything about touching it, by the way. Then the serpent responded. Here's the lie and why he has the power of death. Here's the deception. He said you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of its own eyes, when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so the father of lies ensnared Adam and Eve, flesh and blood, putting them to death by deceiving them with a lie about death. That's why Jesus said in John 8, 44, that speaking of Satan, of the devil, he was a murderer from the beginning. The father of lies became the father of death, exercising his power by what? By deceiving flesh and blood. By causing us to believe, and many today, that sin really isn't a big problem. I think the greatest deception that Satan exercises today upon mankind is to get us to believe that we don't need atonement for our sins, that we don't need a Savior, that we're bad, but we're not that bad. God's holy, but He's not that holy. And so He has this power of of death by His deception. And that's why in Revelation chapter 9, verse 11, His name in the Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek, Apollyon, which means the destroyer. Now, this is grievous, my beloved, because in the Western world, Only about 35% of self-declared Christians believe that Satan is real. Now, I don't know what you do with this passage if you do not believe that Satan is a real created being. And yet the Bible talks about God becoming a man in order to destroy him. I'm not sure how you reconcile that. But what we find here is in the first three chapters of Genesis is that it seems as though the story's already ruined. Right? And Satan enters, he lies to Adam and Eve, flesh and blood, he deceives them into disobeying a God and committing sin and rebelling, and they die. So instead of Adam and Eve, as we saw last week, remember our destiny last week, glory, honor, and ruling with Christ on the throne? Instead of that, you get to the end of 
Genesis chapter 3 and you see Adam and Eve and all their descendants, which would include us, enslaved by sin and enslaved by death, physical and spiritual. But here's the great news for us, my beloved. Satan is not the only one who used death to his advantage. He's not the only one that took death and turned it on its side. By taking on flesh and blood, just like Adam and Eve, Jesus, listen, Jesus put himself in a position to deceive the deceiver. Jesus put himself in a position to murder the murderer, to destroy the destroyer. Look at verse 14 again. That through death he, Christ, might destroy the devil. In other words, by Jesus becoming a man, he does a redo on Genesis chapter 3. He says, no, we're going we're gonna to retake that again. That first take was bad. So this is an editor's cut or a director's cut here to redo Genesis chapter 3. Unlike Adam and Eve, the second Adam came, fully man, flesh and blood. But he lived a sinless life. His entire life in perfect harmony with God's law and God's will. Every command, every precept, every dictate, every expectation that God had for mankind, Christ fulfilled perfectly. Even to the point of humbling himself on a Roman cross to save sinners like us. By becoming a man, living a sinless life, and then subjecting himself to physical and spiritual death, Jesus replayed Genesis 3, but this time with a different outcome. The outcome being not the death of man, but the salvation of man. Luther put it like this, listen. By his wonderful wisdom, God compels the devil to bring about through the death of Christ nothing less than eternal life. God the Father compelled Satan to bring about the death of Christ, and in so doing, he brought about eternal life. What Satan must have thought on the darkest day in human history, on Calvary, Satan must have thought, this is my ultimate victory. The Son of God is dead. How wrong he was. How wrong he was. Because in the death of Christ, Mankind can live. Andrew Peterson, in a song called High Noon, he describes the death of Christ giving way to life on the cross like this. Listen to the poetry. Now the demons, they danced in the darkness. Oh, wait. This is too good for you not to hear. Now the demons, they danced in the darkness when that last ragged breath left his lungs and they reveled and they howled at the war they thought they had won. But then in the dark of the grave, the stone rolled away in the still of the dawn on the greatest of days, high noon in the valley of the shadow, Psalm 23, when the shadows were shot through with light, when Jesus took in that breath, listen, and shattered all death with his life. Satan thought he was victorious the day that Christ was crucified, when in fact God used Satan, the father of lies and the father of death, to fulfill his plan to bring salvation to all mankind. The fulfillment of Satan's demise 
We're told in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10, when Christ comes again in glory, it says, The devil who had deceived them, deceived mankind, was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan is real, my beloved. I pray you're not in that 65% that doubt his reality. But he is fatally wounded. Upon the cross, at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, a fatal blow was made against Satan and the agents of darkness. He has been, past tense, defeated. And that means... If Christ beats Satan and you're in Christ, then you have also won. Don't be like the Christians who talk about the power that Satan has over your life. That's also part of the lie. If you're in Christ, you have won too. Satan has no power over you except what you give him. Satan was defeated by Christ. If you're in Christ, then you've defeated him too. He has no power except you giving in to temptation. You giving in to fear and to sin. You must breathe life back into his mortally wounded body in order to say, Satan has power over me. So the first part of this glorious news and certainly wonderful news to the hearers of this letter is that Satan has been defeated. They did not doubt his existence. In fact, under the persecution of Nero, they were seeing it exercise in full force. But they were so ecstatic that Christ came in the flesh to destroy the devil. It is glorious news. But there's something else. Point number two. The son became a man to rescue us, his people, from the fear of death. To rescue us from the fear of death. Look at verse 15. He came in the flesh, verse 15, to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Verse 16. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Christ came to deliver the offspring of Abraham, all those who what? He's the father of the faithful. All those who live by faith. Jesus Christ came to deliver us. Now, I, don't, I can't hear that word delivery any longer with the weight that the scriptures bring upon it. It literally means, in the Greek, to be set free. When I hear delivery, I think of Amazon and UPS. Right? That's my default. I don't want you thinking of it like that. The author here is saying that Man's bondage to death, and specifically the fear of death, is set free by the God-man who came in order to deliver us as our champion. That word can also be defined as champion, to set free as the one who wins on our behalf. Now, you've probably heard the champion motif, the Christus victor, Christ the victor, Christ the champion, preached before. This passage is one of the primary teachings from it. And it would have resonated with the Jewish Christians at that time. Prior to the Bronze Age, it was not uncommon for warring nations to set up a strategy in advance that if they come to war, instead of filling the fields with blood and having the loss of thousands of lives, they would take their best champion or two or three and they would bring them together. And if their side won, then the spoils would go to the winner. If a champion won, then the people that he represented would win. If the champion lost, then the people would lose. Now, the best-known story of this you probably know is, of course, David and Goliath. We twist that story a lot, but this is definitely an application 
Goliath was the giant Philistine representing the enemies of God's people. Certainly, we would say, uh, um, a representative of Satan himself, desiring to what? To enslave the Israelites under King Saul. And then there was David. David, the unlikely shepherd boy, the unlikely champion, the son of Jesse, representing the nation of Israel. And, of course, you know how the story goes. He goes out in the field. He defeats Goliath. And in defeating Goliath, he set all his people free from the bondage of the Philistines. Jesus, the son of Jesse, the son of David, alludes to himself as our great champion over our spiritual Goliath, the devil. In Luke chapter 11, we're told that Jesus was casting out He was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out of the man, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But then some who were around said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, another name for the devil. Listen to Jesus' response, claiming Christus victor, champion. Jesus said, If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He's saying, if I have the power to cast out demons, then the Messiah, the Christus victor, is here. And then he said this, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Jesus is identifying himself as the champion of God's people The one who came in the flesh, the son of David, to do what? To bind the strong man, Satan. And in binding Satan, taking sinners destined to die, deceived by the evil one, participating in sin, he takes us as spoils of war. The church is Christ's great prize for the work accomplished on the cross. You and I deserve death as a result of our sins, but Christ came and defeated the power of sin and death in destroying the devil that he might bring us into his kingdom of light and life. But according to this passage, Christ not only came to save us from death itself, it says very specifically, to save us from the fear of death. From the fear of death. Now, if you're young, you might go, yeah, whatever. I don't think I thought about death until I hit my 40s. Now I think about it, I think, way too much. Why do we fear death so much? Why does man fear death at all? I would argue fundamentally that we fear death because it is contrary to our nature and our purpose as those created in the image of God. God created man to live how long? Forever. So death would be wrong for creatures made to live forever. Forever, God also created man to enjoy glory and honor and power on the throne with Christ. Well, death ends that. Romans chapter 5, verse 12, sin did enter the world, Paul said, through one man, Adam, and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all have sinned. So man rightly fears death because... Death is the end of all that is good. It's the end of all that is good. It brings finality to our bodies, which were intended to live forever. It brings finality to our careers, to our family, to our friends. 
Death renders us unable to love, unable to create, unable to play, to eat, to dance. If you were a Harry Potter fan, then you remember J.K. Rowling created these characters called Death Eaters. You remember the Death Eaters? Those dark, powerful, ghost-like creatures that would come and they would literally suck the life out of people? Horrible imagery. I hate to tell you, death in real life does the same thing, but infinitely worse. Infinitely worse, because death, according to the Bible, is not just physical death, it's spiritual as well. It's not just temporal death, it is eternal death. And the eternal death is what man should fear. That eternal separation from all that is good forever and ever. It's one thing to think, well, you know what, I may miss it now, I may experience death now, but at least I have life forever. The Bible talks about two deaths, the physical death and the spiritual death. The eternal death is infinitely infinitely worse. That means, listen, no God, no family, no friends, no career, no education, no creativity, no love, no dancing, no parties, no food, no community. There's no community in hell, by the way. Community is a characteristic of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's no community in hell. Complete isolation. The outer darkness, the weeping and gnashing of teeth, the eternal flame that never dies. Those are things that you should say, okay, that's it. It's a devilish trick, is it not? Truly a devilish trick that mankind, created in the image of God, for glory and honor and power, would find himself on this planet, fearing death. A devilish trick that only a devil himself could pull off. The author's audience, they would have understood this well if they, in fact, were in the midst of the persecution of Nero. They were seeing things that church had yet to see in its early stages. Many of their family and friends who were persecuted and found guilty were being nailed to crosses just like Christ. Some were being dressed up and thrown into the arena and fed to lions. Others were being impaled on poles alive and then burned at night to illuminate the gatherings of Nero. They knew this type of fear. But for those who had been saved by grace, for those then and those now who know Jesus Christ as their champion then they had no reason to fear death. Now listen, and here's why. Jesus experienced it fully for them. Jesus experienced their death in full for them. You see, man was born to live forever. We were born to live forever. But because of our sin, we died. Simple. Jesus is the only man ever born to die. And not because he was sinful, but because he was sinless. And by being the sinless, perfect God-man, he's able to give his life for his family. He's able to die in our place and in so doing nullify the power that death has over the children of God. And not just the power that death has, but the power, the fear that death has over the children of God. 
Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 1, through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, God abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's where we're supposed to live. In the light and life of the gospel now. Death has no power over you. Death has no reign over your life if you're in Christ. Satan's greatest weapon, I do believe, his greatest weapon is to compel us to be afraid of death. To be afraid of it. The Western world is particularly afraid of death, if you haven't noticed. (laughs) We don't do well with animals that die. We don't even see animals die. We ignore death by not thinking about it, by not talking about it. We assist in our minds, even when we're old, that it's a far-off thing. When you're young, it's not a far-off thing. What is 20, 30, 40, 70, 80 years? It's nothing. But we don't want to think about it, so it's a far-off thing. We relativize it with statements like this. Everyone's going to die. Really? Is that a profound statement? Or you only live once. My favorite one is this. Nothing is certain but death and taxes. What a pleasant thought as tax season comes around for us, isn't it? Two things I can look forward to, dying and paying my taxes. We run from it with all our might. We try to stay young. We try to look young. We try to feel young. We exercise. We take medications. We live in the doctor's office thinking somehow that person in the white coat is going to enable me to live forever. We lie about it. I think this is the worst thing. We participate in Satan's deception and we lie about death. And when we do that, we are now aligning ourselves with the evil one. We love to lie about it, especially at funerals. And we say things like, I know he's in a better place. Do we? Or something like, I saw a butterfly the other day, and I know that was Grandma Maymay visiting me. Grandma Maymay's not in a butterfly. Not according to the Bible. The one that grieves me most and literally causes my blood to go cold when I hear it is when a loved one says of those who do not know Christ, at least she is in a better place, no longer suffering. The Bible does not teach that. If someone is not saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, then when they leave this place, their worst day on earth will be a picnic compared to their first day experiencing the eternal wrath of a holy God. Apart from Christ, mankind has good reason to fear death. Apart from Christ, you await suffering and eternal judgment. But the good news that the author of Hebrews is sharing with us is that in Christ, your Savior King has won the victory for you on the cross so that death, as you already heard read, and I'll read it again and let these words come in, death has no power over you in Jesus. Young ones, listen. Old ones, listen. No power over you. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Best part, 1 Corinthians 15, 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? 
Is Christ your champion? If it is, then you can say with the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see, Paul got it. As a Christian, Paul got it. He said, I can live this life and I'll live it for Christ. But if I die, if he takes me home, it's so much better. To die for the Christian. This is a hard sell, so listen with all your might. To die for the Christian is gain in every way. It's gain in every way. You get to be released from these bodies of sin and death, and you get to come into, in that moment, in that blink, you get to come into the presence of Jesus Christ, your Lord, your Savior, your lover, your brother. And you get to stay with him for all eternity. For the Christian, physical death is not the absence of life, but entering into the fullness of it. It's not the absence of life, it's entering into the fullness of life. But God equips his people here to overcome the fear of death, not only by reminding us of the champion, that Christ is the victor over death, but he does it by saying, my immediate presence will be with you. Look at verse 16. It's not sufficient just to look back and say Christ is victorious. We want his presence and his power now. Verse 16, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he, Jesus, helps the offspring of Abraham. He doesn't help the angels because they don't need help. The fallen angels cannot be redeemed. One of the great mysteries of the word of God. And the angels who have not fallen, they do not need to be redeemed because they are still sinless. So Jesus Christ comes to help the children of Abraham, the offspring of Abraham, overcome the fear of death. And he does that here, and it's probably hard to hear or get this. It doesn't really translate well, at least not uh, in the ESV. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he, Jesus, helps the offering. Now, when I think of help, it doesn't have the emphasis of that power. You know, I, I, need, I need some help you know, fixing my flat tire, so you come out and you know, jack that car up and put the tire on. That's great. I need some help getting my groceries to the car because my back's hurting. That's, that's, that's help. That's good. That's not the type of help that Christ is talking about. He's not coming to help you get your groceries in the car or fix your flat tire. This word in the Greek literally means to take hold of, to grab onto. And the author is very likely quoting Isaiah 41. Listen to this. Isaiah 41, verses 8 through 10, where God talks about his very real present power. Israel, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. God says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand, who is Christ. So the people are being summoned not to fear death because Christ has conquered death on their behalf. And they're being summoned as we are not to fear death because he is present. He is protecting, he is guiding, he is comforting his people. When I was a child, I, I was afraid of ghosts. And then, by God's grace, at a relatively young age, I learned and believed there are no such thing as ghosts, and I was no longer afraid of ghosts. When I was young, I was also afraid of the water because I didn't know how to swim. And then my dad taught me how to swim, and I wasn't afraid of the water anymore. 
Before I came to know Christ, I was terrified of death. I was terrified of it. I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to think about it. I hated funerals. I hated funerals. Went to my grandfather's funeral at the age of 17 and stood over that open grave and I thought, that's where I'm going. Terrified. I couldn't stand going next to the gravesite. I'd always stay way back. You ever notice that? People don't come next to the gravesite. Everybody gets way back. We don't want to look there because we know that's our end too. But then I came to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and I believed him when he said in John eleven twenty six, 26, whoever lives by believing in me will never die. I believe that. If you know Jesus Christ, you will never die. You say, well, what about our, yeah, your body will go into the grave and it'll be reunited with you when he comes again in glory, but you will never die. You cannot die in Christ. If you have repented of your sins, if you have put your faith in the God-man, the champion, to save you, and you, in fact, are following him. Now listen, it's not just enough to believe. That faith is a saving faith that leads to a life of love and obedience. If you are following Christ and loving and serving him, then that means he has, past tense, he's taken a hold of you. He's not just helping you change your tire. He's grabbed a hold of your hand, and he will not let go. That's a promise. He said, all the Father has given to me, I will not lose one. He will not lose you. My beloved, my father and mother treated us some years ago to the 50th anniversary of Disneyland. I don't know if it was a treat or a curse. I can't decide yet. It's been so many years. We, we went down there and it was packed. I mean, so packed that my uh, Joshy was in a stroller, so he was safe. But I had Brandon and I had Kirk, and we were literally walking Side by side with just so many people. And those guys, their poor little hands were probably broken. They were, I had vice grips on them. There was no way they were going to get away from me. If a sinful man, if a sinful father can hold on to his children, our Heavenly Father will never, ever lose you. Christ has you. And if you are willing to have him lead you day after day. He will take you out of the fear and he'll bring you into the joy and the security and the strength of abiding in this great champion of ours. All right, are you still with me? I got, I got one more point. Christ came in the flesh to destroy the devil. He came in the flesh to rescue man from death and the fear of death. And one more, he came to help those who are tempted. Point number three, the Son of God became a man to help those who are tempted. Look at verse 17. Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the conclusion of chapter 2. He's taking verses 10 through 16 and he's bringing them together as our introduction to Jesus Christ as our high priest. And it's just an introduction. He's going to spend chapters 3 through 10 developing that. 
that Jesus became, verse 14, partook of flesh and blood, and here in 17, made like his brothers in every respect so that he might intercede on behalf of his brothers and sisters, that he might become man's high priest before his heavenly Father. And he comes as our merciful and faithful high priest. Faithful we're going to talk about, so I'm just going to, I'll just wet your palate here. First Samuel chapter 2, verse 35, if you remember, God rejected Eli's house, Eli's priesthood. And he said in 1 Samuel 2, I'm going to raise up for myself, God speaking, a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house. That's the church. And he shall go in and out before me anointed forever. That's Christ. That's a messianic prophecy. Next week, we're going to see if you're here with us how Jesus Christ is the high faithful priest to God, Hebrews 3.2, and faithful over God's house, Hebrews 3.6. But I want, to, I want to close by looking at that word merciful. Jesus is our merciful high priest. How should that encourage you today? To know that Christ, the God-man, is not only your champion, not only the destroyer of Satan, the one who deceives mankind, but he is your merciful high priest. When I hear the word mercy, even now, after all these years of looking at it, I still think of forgiveness, or I think of kindness, or I think of grace. And it's not wrong, but the word merciful here, it's being used in a covenantal sense. Instead of, you can translate this, instead of Jesus, our merciful high priest, you could translate it, Jesus, our covenant-keeping high priest. That changes things a little bit. Jesus, our high priest, reveals his mercy by what? By keeping the covenant God made to Abraham. What was that covenant? To make him the father of many nations. To bring many descendants of faith into glory. So Christ is our merciful high priest because he's our covenant-keeping high priest. How did he keep the covenant? Verse 17, propitiation for the sins of the people. Now that's a fancy way of saying this, that Jesus died in your place, and in so doing, he satisfied the justice of God. By Christ dying on the cross instead of you, he satisfied the wrath of the anger and the justice a holy God must exercise against sin. And in so doing, he gains access into the throne room for sinners saved by grace like us. He keeps the covenant promise. He's the covenant-keeping high priest. He's the merciful high priest by getting us into a place we do not belong as sinners. You see, if the greatest punishment man can receive is the wrath of God, the eternal wrath of God. And deep down, I do believe that's what every man really does fear. Deep down. That we, every man knows that we are appointed to die and then comes judgment. We'll look at that in Hebrews 9. But the greatest mercy then must be If the greatest punishment is eternal damnation, then the greatest mercy must be being set free from that punishment. It must be. Jesus, as our high priest, shows us mercy by satisfying, propitiating, appeasing the wrath of God, the just wrath of God. And he does that 
He takes the wrath of God by taking on flesh and blood and then ascending the cross. That's why Peter's able to say, he himself, speaking of Jesus, listen, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. And then Peter says, by his wounds, we are healed. The covenant promise made to Abraham was that God would bring many sons to glory. But the only way that covenant could be kept in light of the depravity of our own hearts was by the Son of God, one, becoming a man, and two, paying for the debt that we owed in full. That was the only way. The only way. That's why the author can say, look at verse 18, because he himself, Christ, has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. We know that upon his baptism, he was taken out in the desert 40 days, fasting, and then tempted by the same one that tempted Adam and Eve in the very beginning. But this time, the second Adam doesn't take the bait. He's successful. He's tempted, and he wins. He spends three and a half years ministering to people who are not very kind to him. Lots of suffering in his ministry. But without question, the Bible makes it clear. The greatest suffering that Jesus Christ ever experienced was in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of his betrayal. We know that because he himself said this, my soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. There's our word again. Christ, so sorrowful, even to the point of death. And then we're told that he goes a little further. He's in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane with the disciples. He falls on his faith. He prays saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup, that's the cup of the wrath that we deserve, pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The cup that Jesus asked to pass was the cup that I deserve, the cup that you deserve, which is eternal damnation, eternal death. We deserve it because of our sins. Jesus, in his life, he was mocked. He was ridiculed. He was cast out of villages where he did nothing but love and minister and heal. He was, as you know, he was falsely accused, illegally arrested, unjustly tried, and he was sentenced to die. And during that time, he was spat upon, he was brutally beaten, deserted by family, deserted by friends, but no temptation, no suffering comes close to what Jesus experienced on the cross. And it wasn't the nails in his hands. It was the fact that upon the cross, there was a relational breach between the Father and the Son. God the Father became God the judge to the Son and judged Him. So when Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was experiencing our virtual hell. Every thing we rightly deserve for sinning against a holy God, Christ in his body as the second Adam on the cross, he endured it. Separation from joy, separation from love, separation from the life of the Father and the communion of the saints. Christ, he knows the outer darkness. He knows the flame. He knows the isolation. And yet, what did he do? He stayed on the cross. 
Verse 18, he himself has suffered when tempted. There was no time in our Lord's ministry that he was more tempted to get down off that cross than when he started experiencing the separation of the Father. He was tempted to rebel. I would say that verse 18 is probably one of the grossest understatements in all the Bible. He himself has suffered and when tempted. No one suffered like Christ. No one tempted like Christ. He suffered so that you didn't have to, and verse 18, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. How did our Lord's temptation and suffering equip him to help us when we're tempted? Most commentators, and I don't believe this is wrong, but it doesn't quite go deep enough for me. They argue that he can help us because he knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be tempted, but to be successful. He didn't sin. He didn't rebel. He didn't give up the mission. Being, verse 17, made like his brothers in every respect, that means he experienced total humanity, all the struggles, and yet without sin. So we're told that he can, he can minister to us better than anybody because no one has suffered and no one has been tempted more than him. And that's certainly true. I mean, he, he can sympathize, he can empathize, he can understand whatever suffering you're going through, have or will. He knows it. He knows the temptation to turn away. He knows the temptation to sin. He never did, but he knows the temptation. My question, as I really thought about this, is well, how does that enable him, though, to help me? How does it enable him to help you when you're being tempted at that moment of temptation? Again, the Greek helps a bit. The word help here in verse 18 is a military term. And it means to respond to a critical need or to someone in crisis. It literally means to run. To run to meet an urgent distress, distress call. An SOS. A 911. My father some years ago suffered a, a significant heart attack. And if not for someone calling 911 and there being an immediate response, he would not be here with us today. They came, they intervened, and he made it to the hospital and he lived. Immediate assistance is given to those who are in urgent need. That's what verse 18 is saying, and that changes it for me. I hope it changes it for you. Simply knowing that someone has suffered as I am suffering, even if it's Christ, or simply knowing that someone is being tempted to sin like Christ was tempted to sin, that may help when the suffering, the temptation is mild, right, when it's not that bad. I receive some comfort in knowing that Christ and others suffer and are tempted like I am. I receive some comfort from 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that no temptation has overcome me except what is common to man. That's hard to believe sometimes. I feel like I'm tempted like no others, but I know you are tempted the exact same. But when the suffering is really, really hard and the temptation to sin and rebel against God teeth-clenching for me, I need more. I need real, powerful, immediate intervention. 
Someone who not only knows my suffering and knows my temptation, but someone who can get me through it. That's Jesus. And here's why verse 18 should have the right weight in your life. Listen. Through his suffering and death, he overcame the power of sin and death for his people. He was exalted to the right hand of the Father as our merciful high priest. And what was one of the first things he did? What was one of the first things your merciful high priest, your covenant-keeping high priest did when he got to the right hand of God the Father? What did he promise the disciples in John chapter 16? He said, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you and he will guide you into all truth. This is better. This is better than just knowing that Jesus has suffered as I am suffering and Jesus has been tempted. This is better. This is saying Jesus knows and therefore he sent the Spirit. He sent the Spirit just as the Spirit descended upon Jesus at his baptism and carried him through his ministry. All the temptation, all the suffering, and the death upon the cross. Through faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes upon you and dwells in you. That you might live your life, your ministry in the service and the love and the mission that God has called you to successfully. That means, my beloved, anytime you need help, anytime, day or night, that you are in the midst of that suffering that you cannot describe in words, anytime you find yourself tempted to turn away from God, to turn away from the church, to turn away from the Bible, to stop praying, to rebel, you can send out a 911 to the Lord. And you'll get more than a sympathetic ear. You'll get real power. Real power to not only endure unspeakable suffering, but to overcome the temptation to sin as what? As a champion. As a champion. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 8, 37, that we are what? We are more than conquerors. We are more than victors. We are more than champions through him who loves us. In other words, the champion, Jesus Christ, makes us champions too. There's no place in the church for saying, the suffering's too much, I must cave. The temptation's too much, I must sin. If you're in Christ, you're a champion.